0: Welcome to the Cybersecurity and Cloud Podcast, the podcast where we learn from cybersecurity experts how to stay safe, private, and secure on the cloud and in code. CSCP is hosted by Francesco Cipollone, your cybersecurity friend with a passion for all things cyber and sharing stories of other professionals with you. This episode is brought to you by the generosity of Phoenix Security Limited. Phoenix helps startups and enterprises solve complex software security supply chain visibility by leveraging the power of correlation and contextualization. Discover how Phoenix Security helps CISO and security engineers act fast, prevent burnout, and implement DevSecOps at the speed of cloud. Phoenix Security, correlate, contextualize, and act on risk with one click. Let's dive in.
1: Hello everyone, and welcome back to the Cyber Security and Cloud Podcast. This is your host Francesco Frank for friend, to be Frank, <laughs> and today we are discussing yet again another super interesting topic around, of course, application security and a deeper dive on something I've been always puzzled on: what is the concept of product and what is the concept of application? And we have with us David that is coming to. Talk a little bit more on this because you, David, talked a lot about this on LinkedIn and I follow your article, your discussion. I really love it. But before we dive deeper, David, thank you so much to come,
2: coming on the show. Tell us a little bit more about yourself. Thank you, Frank. My name is David Matuvic, and I am a product director of cybersecurity at Manulife Financial. I got to this position o- over a 20-year career, really starting as a technical. A developer, building mm-hmm. websites, mobile applications, and eventually getting an opportunity to lead uh, some mobile development teams. From there, uh, as part of what we would call a digital transformation in a large enterprise uh, that did it, um, I don't know if it was effective or not, but many engineering managers mm-hmm. quickly found themselves to have a new uh, title as a product manager. Um, I had no idea that product manager was a thing at that point in time, about seven years ago, uh, nor what the expectations uh, of what I was supposed to do. But uh, in all good things, we try to figure out what we have to do. And it led me along uh, a very you know, uh, in-depth journey uh, of trying to understand product management, product ownership, uh, technical product management, and begin to articulate what we were doing as a mobile team, as a product. And the first product that really mattered that we started building was identity as a service for mobile because as any application that you would need to build, Mm -hmm. uh, you would need to have identity. And so so we we thought of it from a more abstract point of view. And we started defining the features and and functions of that particular service that we wanted and, and built it internally, and it became, so popular other applications wanted to use the same service, not just mobile. It became used, you know, for web and, and for other things and kind of led to an opportunity to grow um, as a service internal products inside of a large financial organization. Lo and behold, after building a couple of those, one of the most recent ones I've become involved in is, is, is cybersecurity. And then trying to define what does it mean, you know, for our application security, our cloud security, our network security to be a product that we essentially sell as a service to our business mm-hmm. units and application developers throughout the enterprise.
1: And that's that's a brilliant point of, of the evolution. How How did you, what made you make the leap? Like it was a force or a transition leap or you said... Like, that's an interesting field. I want to get into it. and then maybe we can touch what do you think about the difference between the traditional application security and now what we consider product security?
2: Yeah, so at the time, it it became an interesting opportunity to to learn something other than engineering. Like many of us, i I had been a participant in a couple of startups and as a you know developer, the first thing you know any 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 advice I would get is get a product person to help you and, and all of a sudden, I was now the product person, and it just gave me the opportunity and kind of kind of the kick to research what does that really mean for the first time. and I, I think that you know as we you know as that grew, it, it came into this ability to define very abstract concepts like like application security inside of an enterprise as a product, and then grow that into. A product security offering, and, and what I mean by that is, it, it first started out as, you know, application security as a product to us was a collection of, you know, tools that satisfy compliance requirements mm-hmm. or potentially, you know, expedite what developers can do. Um, but it, but it was really a, a set of rules and requirements that developers had to follow in order to release an application into production. And Mm -hmm. and application security has this this construct that it becomes a developer's problem or or shift it left to the the developer. When we started thinking about product security and and product as a whole, developers became our customer. Mm -hmm. And our customer wants a frictionless experience where they can, you know, focus on their needs. And as as a developer, my need was my boss had a new feature requirement that I need to get into production. I don't really care about satisfying security requirements. I need to. So the less work you can make it for me to achieve that goal, the better. Right. And and product security then started taking that approach of really removing the friction from the developer experience in app security. No, I'm, I think that's
1: brilliant be say, but as, as we all know, businesses want to get to the feature that needs to release as fast as you can. So also there is the flip side of if security is not a driver for the business. How do we make it a driver for the business? Or how do we translate that information to the business so that they can move along in the risk profile that they want, right?
2: Well, and for, for me, it's building a relationship with our uh, platform team and making sure that the tools that developers use have security integrated as soon as they get it. So they don't need to go out of their way and make Mm -hmm. sure that uh, it's configured correctly or that uh, a container has been, might have vulnerabilities because we are giving them a, a, a golden image to begin with. So taking that out of the developer's hands and moving it into a relationship between you know shared services is an extremely powerful way to start uh, making that you know simpler for the developers because developers the goal is is that when you know you don't want that last day right before you push to production to run a bunch of security scans and say look this is we can't release this you need to go back and do more work we need to make sure that happens along the entire path of the development process and, and that comes from having those really clear requirements baked into the process itself, that makes it so that developers don't have to do any additional work to really accomplish what they need to do.
1: And I I like why you're taking this because you touched on probably two very important elements. The first one that is guardrails and trying to remove security problem, even before they hit the development community with golden image or default or security defaults uh, to demystify security default can be as simple as here's a clean image that everybody needs to use and uh, it can go all the crazy concept, I guess, on this is a secure pipeline that you secure building blocks and, you know, you can make it as simple and as complicated, but you, you really touch on one important problem. And then to demystify the use of password shift left. <laughs> I'm not gonna use it. Sorry. Or shift everywhere, as you rightfully say, because this is or shift smart, as Jeff says. I think touching point on on bringing the security tooling ahead of the pipeline, building security fault, working with your stakeholder on requirement. I think that is a framework that now is considered product security but it wasn't considered application security at the beginning right the business knew i need to release this can you pen test it and then just give us the green light that was application security a few years ago not that that far away
2: yeah no it, it's been really recent one of the you know there's been a couple of ways that we've been able to implement this and when you think about shifting left it's not just about you know providing vulnerability knowledge you know to the developer right in their IDE you know mm-hmm. that, that is great, but it's you know those vulnerabilities and new vulnerabilities are cropping up all the time. It's really becomes you know something where we need to monitor our source code repositories continuously, and when new vulnerabilities match to relationships we may have in our code, uh, we need to alert the developers of that you know instantaneously through you know, a pull request, or, you know, some sort of a mechanism to uh, an alert. But we also have to do it uh, correctly. We can't create too many false positives or developers will uh, pull their hair out because uh, they only have so many hours in the day and so many cycles to devote towards security. And and that's kind of, you know, the the fine line that we have to, to, to balance. Um, how many vulnerabilities, can we inject back into the application backlog?
1: Right. And I think you touched to very important point there, that is the security backlog and CICD, because both of them, I think there is a whole discussion happening of shifting left and removing all the vulnerabilities they appear. But as we well know, as soon as you turn on any security scanner in any organization, you will have an enormous, a sea of red, as, as I used to call a sea of red vulnerability, not all of them actually matters. But most importantly, you might have product that doesn't even have a development team behind it. So you need to make business decision around that. And that becomes your security backlog that you need to chisel away. And on the other side, as you clearly mentioned is, okay, I have something in the code, but something might pop in on a piece of repository or something that I have developed that I haven't touched maybe in years, right? How do you deal with, with that complexity of, of
2: vulnerability management at scale, really? Well, the first one is actually really exciting. And I think it's an interesting moment in time inside of you know product and application security is the fact that we have large amounts of vulnerabilities. We know that many of them might be critical. Many of but even more of them are very low hanging fruit or, mm-hmm. or very low, not very important at this moment in time. They may not even be reachable or exploitable uh, to the greater community, but we, we just know that they may exist. So how do you prioritize all of those vulnerabilities based on what matters most in the enterprise? Um, that can be uh, prioritization based on risk and the value of the application. And injecting just that top couple of percent back into the backlog that matter most, and and that's the trick right now. And I think everybody in 2023 is racing after that to be able to do that sort of risk analysis of our vulnerabilities. The second half is, is is how do you deal with, you know, longstanding applications with teams that may or may not exist any longer and vulnerabilities are continuously uncovered. You know, and that's a cultural issue inside of many large organizations. And that becomes, you know, a pattern that we need to establish, you know, very controlled standards on where we store our source code and and how it's, you know, accessible and how it deploys into production over a long period of time. We've found that, you know, source code, repos- you know, many developers followed, you know, the rules and, and put information into a source code repository, maybe not necessarily the standardized uh, source code <laughs> repository. And, and the, the code exists over under the desk, right? <laughs> <laughs> and, and that doesn't that that's a fail because it doesn't do the enterprise any good, um, because even though you followed the rules, um, it's not accessible to a team five years down the road. And, and and why I say this is a culture changes is we keep thinking, you know, as many times in, in our, our lives, we think that we need to be the expert in the room. We need to protect, you know, protect what we've built and kind of, you know, keep ourselves, you know, hired in this case, you know, building the culture that, you know, you're, you're not that developers don't need to be afraid that they need to, you know, in order to elevate themselves and get into roles of engineering management. You actually need to make it so that your job is either automatable or doable by somebody else. And that means using, <laughs> you no know, the standardized source code repositories across the organization, standardized ways of scanning for code and vulnerabilities and making it so that your work is re- replaceable. It's, it's, it's awfully is, that scary is favorite sentence,
1: That is That is the favorite sentence of a couple of my friends. What is your objective in life? Making
2: myself <laughs> or replaceable? And that's one of the pieces of advice that I received, you know, many years ago, you know, that we're all replaceable Mm -hmm. and, you know, keeping that in mind, our special, you know, sauce that we can, we can bring to it isn't sheer coding. It needs to be, you know, more people skills, communication skills, and, you know, know, making sure that uh, we we bring everyone else up together. And, And that's, that's not something that's been traditional inside of many development shops, but. You know, I think as we, you know, grow, I think we'll see it happen more and more. And,
1: you know, we had, of course, ChatGPT and the whole discussion about replaceability of developer versus and security professional because I played my fair share of actually secure code review and it broke my code several times. But let, let's not get into, into that rabbit hole because I really, I really appreciate you mentioned three or four kind of keywords passing by that I think they are very powerful, but there is a whole range of difference. You mentioned prioritization of vulnerability, a risk-based approach, but also the concept of context from a business perspective and from a location perspective. And then you even drop the bomb of saying reachability, that is from a network perspective or even from a code perspective. Those are very, I think I like to mention them, but also There is a scale of complexity of of measuring them and knowing which one. And I think they come a different stage of triage of what do I do with this vulnerability? What do we do with this? And automatable to a certain extent and with a certain level of complexity. Maybe we can double down on that and like, what's your receipt for automate versus manual versus automatable work versus uh, non-automatable work? Because now there is, as you rightfully say, there is a race of actually saying tool can solve everything. But I disagree with that. Uh, A combination of tool and people can solve everything and you can't automate. You shouldn't automate everything.
2: No, not yet. I I don't think we're prepared to automate everything yet. Automation in our vulnerability management is a very important, you know, practice to bring in. But realizing that sheer volumes will still overwhelm, you know, Mm -hmm. the, the work in progress. We need to still prioritize that, you know, work of vulnerability remediation in the order it should be done, assuming that we have so much to do that we'll never get to the end of it. Exactly. And it's not a simple process. It is complex. There are variables of understanding exploitability, fixability, reachability, and value back to the business because there's no point in fixing a vulnerability in a application that nobody uses anymore. Mm -hmm. So creating that prioritization list is hard work. It can be done through automated methods. I'm very interested to see where machine learning and and, and, um, generative AI takes us along those paths. I don't feel that we've really gotten there yet, uh, but hopefully soon. Yeah, I will say
1: let, let, let's crawl before we run because it's, it's easy to throw Gen AI and automated secure code review and, and reachability of code review. I think reachability has had more success rather of, of code rather than automatic code review that have been hit and miss. And there is also concern around you retrain on that data? Do you have a dedicated tree and uh, that this knowledge just dedicated to you or that information is actually shared amongst and can leak? Um, there is a whole debate around Gen AI and uh, AI in general. And I think I' start seeing the the new generation of tools as well, to protect and attack yeah. Gen AI where, model
2: where I'm very interested to see uh, generative AI go. Is in threat modeling of our app, mm. um, application developers, and getting into threat modeling. You know, in trying to build a few processes and having many of them fail in, in my life, um, I think this might be a very good path towards standardizing the way we we can threat model applications and. That's been the main challenge is is standardizing that you know knowing you know the threats an application might have how it relates to the controls that our governance models have has just been such a challenge. And that's very contextual. Yeah,
1: that that they come with the challenge of like knowing where you deploy the application, and and not every application is deployed in the same environment. You might have a piece of software that is or a library, even in in that particular case, that is deployed in multiple applications. Hence the Context becomes really a variable and a variable of variables, because especially when we talk library, we talk first level of dependency, second level or even third level when the library comes from somewhere else that you download it, you put in a piece of software that then becomes part of your image and then part of another bigger piece of software. so I think there is a blast radius of dependency. but even and that can be overwhelming to actually unpackage and un- and, un- and unravel and I think the whole spom conversation has unraveled a headache for the new, old, and interim generation of application security people. But even starting from the basic of actually understanding your context, I think is powerful. But there is, I always like to say there is a cost-benefit effect on, on understanding how much you need to drill in and, and spend time in, in triaging versus, yes, I'll fix it. Like you can spend hours and hours and hours triaging and getting to that narrow list. But also, just saying, like, I spent half of that time actually fixing or even just replacing their library altogether or dropping that piece of code. And that's the, the human part that I think is very important as well.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And the human part of cybersecurity is is not going to go away anytime soon. Um, where I've uh, most recently been finding the value of, of human empathy and cybersecurity has been concerning um, our relationship with, uh, business owners of, of applications throughout our enterprise and being able to communicate uh, what, when they pay, you know, a percentage of their budget uh, for you know, global cybersecurity services, what does that mean in mm-hmm. terms that the business owners understand? So telling a business owner that I threat modeled my application so that, you know, you, we're gonna do something doesn't mean anything to them. When you articulate it that you know we 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 scanned our applications for vulnerabilities and securities in order to reduce the risk to the organization and the percentage chance that a major vulnerability will happen that could have a cost of you know x million dollars, they then begin to see the value of, of what you do, and so that type of communication back to the business in terms that they understand, I think is the next wave inside of cybersecurity.
0: This episode is brought to you by the generosity of Phoenix Security Limited. Phoenix helps startups and enterprises solve complex software security supply chain visibility by leveraging the power of correlation and contextualization. Phoenix platform connects to your repositories, scanners and cloud, correlates all the information, and provides you with a prioritized list of vulnerabilities that need to be addressed first. Discover how Phoenix Security helps CISOs and developers remove friction and maximize the use of DevSecOps professionals at phoenix.security. Phoenix Security. Correlate, contextualize, and act on risk with one click.
1: You're talking my language, David. I'm smiling so much because you're talking my language I think you, you you hit a really specific and nail point that is business doesn't talk vulnerability, maybe talks a little bit pen test because we hammered pen test in every possible regulation on earth, I think,
2: and it will never go away and and they really talk return on investment, you know yeah. I put in x amount into security, I get out a reduction of risk, meaning that I am less likely to be breached by uh, Threat actor by X percent.
1: Because it's it's cost versus cost, right? It's it's, security will and is cost center, but also can bring benefit. And the benefit is, as you say, risk reduction. And and maybe not even like a business could be like, I need to go to production tomorrow with this feature. Otherwise, we lose the train, we lose the marketing effect. And that risk versus, I don't know, a critical vulnerability, maybe it's not exploitable, is a balance of risk making decisions that. We can, a security professional, we should inform the business of, but we shouldn't take an action on and making them in control of their risk and their decision and their life is what security professional we should go back to. That, that's
2: absolutely 100% correct. The business sets the risk appetite. They determine how much risk they are willing to take. It is our job to communicate to them in terms that they understand how much risk they're actually taking in ways that we can reduce it, mm-hmm. uh, ways that we can accelerate their time to market, uh, and, and all sorts of business metrics. But it becomes more of an MBA problem versus a, a CSIP problem.
1: Yeah, I think that you touch a point that is a security professional. We haven't spent like business understand very well risk, Well, as security, we we understand very well the problems but we haven't evolved the risk concept so much so that the business can understand. And that has always been the challenge of a CISO being on the board and talking very techy detail versus presenting a risk profile. And mainly, and I'm always exploring this concept of why we are in this history of like immature risk modeling versus the business. And I think because cybersecurity risk is so variable and it's so young as a as an evolution. So we are evolving with FAIR and other methodology, I think.
2: Many of of us are used to having a blank check to fix every security hole uh, that may exist. And when a new acronym comes around in app security, uh, we look to buy a tool that solves the problem. But 2023, 2024, 2025, I can't tell you when, but the blank check will get torn up. And we need to be able to use the resources we have in the most effective way possible. And that means prioritizing the work we do by risk reduction and return on value to the business. And that's um, going to be a mantra that cybersecurity organizations need to start repeating to themselves, um, or they will get replaced, you know, (laughs) Or get uh, relegated to not being listened to by the the business teams because they need to deliver features to their customers at the same time.
1: Yeah, and I think right now is is more important than ever to talk about risk, to talk about profiling, because if you don't like right now, the attention is on the on existential risk for a lot of business. So if you go there and if you keep on talking about yes, we have this potential stuff, we have this hypothetical plus radius as a security as a ciso and a security professional we kept on being treated as the children in the business room when everybody are talking about existential risk cost cutting and things that really matter to the business especially right now so if yeah. you present like an existential crisis of you know losing your brand reputation in a moment where brand is super important and where marketing is super important And things like that, then you probably be listened to as an application security professional and as a CISO.
2: Yeah, and getting back into you know application security, it is one of the key pillars of of what we need to accelerate inside the organization. And as I kind of you know explore the different you know realms that cybersecurity plays in, application security really has this Mm -hmm. lens of uh, that that, this, this. lends to a uh, product to it because your internal customers are your developers. And it becomes this really important relationship that you build between your application security program and your developers uh, inside of the organization. And it, it doesn't, th- that type of a model really doesn't exist in, in many of the other areas of security, like network security. You don't get to know every one of your end users. Uh, but in app security, your end users dictate. Um, it can provide um, really important feedback into what you're doing as a security organization. Um, it gives you a lot of opportunities to create, you know, stakeholder meetings of your developers and and, and really learn from what's going on um, at the, the grassroots level for people that are delivering code um, to production for paying customers outside of your organization. Yeah, and, and, and you should be a helper to them, not a, a, a showstopper.
1: But maybe on, on the point of network, like there is, I think, two waves of product security and application security. There is the full stack, full DevOps. I build it, I own it. That is, you own the stack from network, from platform up to your code. And then there is a traditional, the more traditional approach of OPSEC and AppSEC, what do you think about that? Is is it going to stay? Is it going to evolve? Are we going to still discuss about platform security versus application security and or product
2: security you want? Well, I I won't pretend to be an expert in this area, but my understanding is, is that, you know, as we, you know, really need to protect all of our layers of security and and our networks span everything from, you know, our application to our platform, to our broader environments that we may be, you know, existing in, I think network security is going to really span across all of those layers all the time, mm-hmm. and there's no way around it uh, because we need to limit, you know, and create smaller networks for each application inside of our platform. Uh, we need to create smaller networks of our platforms so that we have multiple platforms that are satisfying just the applications that they should be. And it becomes a very, you know, scalable, you know, model—not um, your traditional network security where there's one big network, but but having a bunch of small networks that are you know in written in code, um, ideally, we're gonna we're going start to see, I bet uh,
1: yeah, and, and and I totally agree on on even network security application, even the traditional appliance like firewall and operating system are becoming container, are becoming infrastructure as a code, and things that can get compromised or can get security default inside the code in itself. So everything is becoming code. So even traditional network, I mean, there are still traditional challenge of patch management versus upgrading a library. They are fundamentally two different beasts. And maybe because we get a patch, we don't get a fix (laughs) that we can apply in a safe way because a lot of patch are actually, we got better, I think, we got used to patch being reliable and us like blindfolded, like patch Wednesday, like you patch everything when the system doesn't break and when Microsoft doesn't release three or four patches of fixes, I think from a, from a production perspective and also we become a bit more reliant on that. Well, in application security, and I want to hear your opinion on that, how challenging and painful it is to upgrade a library,
2: to deploy a fix. How challenging is it to deploy I mean, ideally, and I haven't, this is, a, I, I'm i going to say I'm not, I haven't been involved in that in some time, um, mm. but, you know, my goal is is to automate it, at least to the, the pull request, um, automate the testing for the developer and, and making sure the tools are there for them to be able to, to provide the fix in a way that uh, they're provided the, you know, the information they need in an automated way and can quickly get it into production you know continuous delivery is is kind of where we want to be but it is challenging to get there unless you right. codify all of your rules and requirements in a, in a workflow
1: right and the challenge sometimes is also as you mentioned going getting into production regression testing and all the challenge that Deprecating a specific function in a specific library on a specific method might generate a new code and what's the impact in that? And
2: and to a point, that can be automated with
1: regression testing. On some other point, maybe not.
2: Right, you know, and it depends on the type of change. Like if you have to change libraries for, you know, a function because uh, there is no patch for that particular library and Mm -hmm. it's not safe to use any longer, that's a much different... Uh, remediation than, you know, upgrading to the next, you know, point level.
1: And I think that's where human comes really, really in place, but we need to give them the time to actually do this consideration. If we focus on all the vulnerability all the time in triaging, when tools are actually good at triaging a lot or screening down a lot of these vulnerability with some extent of complexity. Anyway, this has been a brilliant conversation. Unfortunately, we're coming close to the time. We have a tradition here, David, that is leaving everybody with a warm and five feeling with a positive message. And I think we touch on a lot of positive message in this podcast, so I'm particularly happy about this.
2: <laughs> but what will be your final take and your final message? Well, for me, um, what I like to, to talk about right now is that product or the concept of product management in cybersecurity or product led security is still a really, really early field concept to get in. This is a really interesting time for product managers that are in other verticals to take the dive and go into cybersecurity and and learn how to learn a technical skill that will elevate them into, you know, the business. Conversely for developers who are really interested in learning more business skills, they have an opportunity to become product owners and product managers and, and learn the business skills. So it's this really great time of elevation for our junior members in cybersecurity, for people who have you know, spent many hours doing you know, operations tasks and, and really doing the hard hard work that cybersecurity teams <laughs> do to take some leadership levels and maybe not necessarily leadership levels with people underneath them, but leadership levels where you're learning matrix management and product management inside of an organization. And that type of an opportunity doesn't come along often. Um, But in cybersecurity, I see that happening over the next couple of years.
1: Now, that's great. And you've write a lot about this. Where can people find more about what you write, your
2: blogs, your research, your thought process? Yeah. So. I, you can find me on LinkedIn, David Matuzic LinkedIn, as well as on Medium, where I publish my blogs.
1: Fantastic. And what is the uh, tag name on Medium?
2: Same, David Matuzic.
1: <laughs> fantastic. Thank you very much, David. And everybody, this has been a fantastic conversation. Um, go out there, explore the role that you have available because it's a fantastic time of transformation, I think, when we have AI, generative AI, product security, application security, running a breakneck speed and innovating. And you can carve your space in here and you can carve your next evolution path that will take you to your product security role, to your CISO role, to whatever role you really want to craft because that's the beauty of, of cybersecurity is changing dramatically
2: every four years. David, thank you so much for coming on the show. Any last point? No, thank you very much, Frank. this has been an amazing experience. It's just, you know, it's great to be continuously learning and being able to share it with the broader community. Fantastic. Thank you everyone. And David, thank you so much for coming on the show. Stay thank safe you.
1: Bye-bye.
0: We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Please leave us a review on Apple Podcast and post it on social media tagging Cybersecurity Cloud Podcast for a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card. Discover other episodes at www.cybersecuritypodcast.com.